If you're new here, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors, and it's my honor today to uh, open the Scriptures and uh, seek to uncover what God would be saying to us uh, today. This is the last chapter in the book of Daniel involving uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 1, we were introduced to him, and there he is, the Babylonian king who subdued Jerusalem and carted off the very best and brightest of the young men, including Daniel and his friends. In chapter 2, he's the guy who couldn't remember his dream or its interpretation, so he brought all his wise men in, and when they couldn't, then he decided to have them all killed by ripping their appendages from their body. Uh, It's not the way I want to go out. How about you? Daniel heard of this. He was used by God to rescue all of those wise men by interpreting the dream. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is the king whose lust for his own glory blossomed. He built a huge tower, uh, a huge statue to himself, and that gold statue was then to be the place that everyone would bow down in worship. Three young men refused. And so the king threw them into a burning furnace. This is the king, as we've seen him thus far. He's an absolute monarch ruling over the world's dominant superpower. And so he could get whatever he wanted. This is what he was used to. And in fact, in sources outside Daniel, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was a cruel, cruel man. There's stories of him burning people to death. There's stories of him having people brought to him who were enemies so that they could be killed before his eyes. There are stories of him gouging out people's eyes, of stealing their most precious things, and of decimating entire cities. Now it's true in chapter 2 and 3 that there are brief moments where for a few verses, Nebuchadnezzar says something that's true about God. But if you look at those statements closely, they're all impersonal, and they're all incomplete. This seems to change as we come to Daniel chapter 4. Look with me, please, at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs and mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. If you've been with us, you'll notice here right in the very beginning that there are several things that are different. First, this is a different genre. We've been in what's narrative. It's it's telling a story. But as we turn to chapter 4, we have instead what is a personal letter. It's a letter that's official and yet intimate. You also notice that Nebuchadnezzar here is talking differently than he has talked before. Look especially at the last couple of words in verse 2. For me. This is the king extolling God for what God has done for him. Now that's remarkable language for anybody to use. I mean, to talk of a God who rules over all as aware of and doing something for you is quite a thought. And that's exactly what the king here says. Notice also that This chapter begins with the end in mind. Like a movie that starts with a a scene late in the movie that you don't know what it means, 
and then spends the rest of the movie filling in the gaps, that's what this chapter will do. He tells us in the beginning something that he's going to mirror in the end. And yet here at the start, we don't know what he's talking about. What had God done for Nebuchadnezzar? And what difference does it make to us today? Well, that's what this chapter's about. The way I want to pursue this this morning with you is to simply tell you the story, only making a few comments here and there. And then in the end, once we've seen the whole thing from, from start to finish, then try to make some application for our lives today. Look with me, please, at verse 4. Nebuchadnezzar, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. This, in a verse, is the king saying, I was at the top of my game. I'm at ease in all spheres of my life. At home, things were going well. At work, I was a smashing success. Now, we've only jumped from chapter 3 to chapter 4, but scholars tell us that the time distance between the events in chapter 3 and the events in chapter 4 is two decades. So 20 years have passed from the last time we were together. Scholars uh, tell us this because it helps us understand something of what Nebuchadnezzar would have felt about himself. The truth is that at this point in time, he did, in fact, control most of the known world. One author described it this way, his kingdom stretched from the Persian Gulf in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, from Egypt in the south to Iran in the north. In other words, he was king over the then known world. His power had been solidified. Jerusalem by this point had been destroyed, the temple burned to the ground. All his major enemies had been conquered. Egypt and Tyre had been plundered. Babylon has been constructed. This is now the most impressive and probably largest city on earth. And at the top of the food chain was King Nebuchadnezzar. Friends, we often think that our greatest moments of vulnerability lie when we are at our weakest. We, we imagine that temptations are the strongest when we're feeble. That God's most easy to forget when we're suffering. But all of those things are wrong. You are never more at spiritual risk than when your life is at ease. Success provides fertile ground for pride. And nothing is so catastrophic to our spiritual vibrancy as the illusion that we are magnificent. Frankly, I think if you or I had been in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes we too likely would have been overrun with our self-worship. And the fact that you don't think you would have been is only proof of the same. Let me say it again. You are never more at risk than when you're getting what you want and your life is easy. So be careful when life is good. Ease is something of a spiritual kryptonite. And that's what makes verse 3 of chapter 4 so surprising. That the king at the very height of his power is essentially turning and saying, 
I'm not the one. There is somebody else who has more power than me. So the big question we are supposed to be asking at this point is what would have caused Nebuchadnezzar to say that? Let's find out, starting in verse 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Have you ever been bothered by a fancy? Uh, So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar's time of ease didn't last long. It only took him one night, one dream, to put him in a mood. If you were here with us several weeks ago when we covered chapter 2, you'll remember that in the ancient world, dreams were thought to be the way the polytheistic gods broke in and spoke to people in the material world. They would direct people what to do based on what you dreamed. And so for a king to not know what a dream meant would have been terrifying to him. Nebuchadnezzar therefore called his advisors in. And unlike chapter 2, he remembers the dream, but he needs help knowing what it meant. All of his wise men came in, and one of the things that have been uh, excavated from ancient Babylon are what was called dream books. These are literal paper books that these wise men would go to, unroll them based on elements in the dreams. They would then look in the book and tell the king what the dream meant. And yet there were elements of this dream that meant it was impossible for them to interpret it. But then Daniel showed up. And Daniel, some 30 years prior to this, had interpreted another dream. That's Daniel 2. Let's see if he'd be willing and able to do so again. Verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me. He was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom the spirit of the holy gods is. And I told him a dream saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dreams I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lie in bed are these. I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, that's a way of describing the angel, an angel came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and thus said, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let them be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the grass. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let the beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. 
The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you're able. For the spirit of the holy gods is in you. It's clear that Nebuchadnezzar held Daniel in high regard, and for good reason. Like Joseph, long before him in the book of Genesis, Daniel had lived for years as a faithful man, full of character, worshiping God in a society that rejected him. And like Joseph, he was called in repeatedly to offer interpretation to a pagan king. Will God reveal the meaning of this dream? And will Daniel, all of these years after the first dream, be willing to answer and interpret this one? Well, we'll read in a moment that the answer to those questions is yes. But there are some things different here than were true earlier in the book of Daniel. Unlike the first dream, Daniel found himself hesitant. The text actually uses the word dismayed and alarmed as he received from God the meaning of this dream. There's something more horrible about this one, in other words. And although Daniel got up the nerve to tell the king, the meaning of his bad dream. I won't read it, but you might go back later today and look at verse 19. Because essentially what Daniel says in verse 19 is, King, I wish this dream weren't true. I wish you didn't face the hard thing that you're going to face. Now, frankly, just pause for a moment here, and I would say I found that absolutely stunning. And that says more about me than it does Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who stole Daniel from his homeland. He, he, he was robbed from his family in his preteen years. And now he's had to live decades apart from them. Everything Nebuchadnezzar stood for is the opposite of everything Daniel stood for. And yet, when Daniel heard something bad's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't rejoice. He didn't arrogantly boast. He wasn't ecstatic. It's so different than the attitude today. Friends, remember that Jesus says that we're to bless those who harm us, to pray for those who persecute us how different our tweets would be if we obeyed our Lord. How much stronger our witness for Christ would be if we had an attitude like Daniel's. That even on those who have done evil to us, we would not wish evil in return. Now let's look at the interpretation. Verse 20. The tree you saw, this is Daniel talking, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the whole ends of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all. Under the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. 
If you know your Bible well, you may be thinking of Genesis 1. That's exactly what this is supposed to cause us to do. It's as though God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you're like another Adam. You were given another chance to provide a place of safety and bounty for the world. Did he do it? Well, verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness is grown and reaches the heavens in your dominion to the end of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots on the earth, bound with a brand of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the fields till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. So we've gone this far into the chapter. The narrator's been holding us in suspense. What does all this mean? It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be like the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. I can't dwell here long because we're covering the whole chapter this morning, but notice a couple of key issues in the meaning of this dream. Let me mention three. First, the king is represented by the tree. Now, anybody who's done anything outside in Phoenix understands the wonder of a tree. The shade is marvelous, is it not? The, the, the part of the world that this dream occurred in, the topography is much like here. And so a tree was thought of as a, a beautiful place of protection from the elements and provision. And Nebuchadnezzar was representative of that. Sometimes uh, I think that we look at people who are prideful, and in some cases we think, well, they're delusional because it doesn't look like their lives have amounted to much. But in other cases, we look at other people and think, wow, they have got it. And we find ourselves gawking. In reality, neither one of those individuals, nor us, have any reason for pride at all. Because the way the Bible describes how life works is that everything we have has been given to us. That if you have a particular talent or resource or have found success in some area, it's, it's been that way because God's given you the talents and gifts you have and the environment in which they can flourish. What do we have that we were not given? The Scriptures say. Nebuchadnezzar had been given these things by God, and yet he refused to acknowledge it. 
However grand our kingdoms might be, or His was, there's never room for boasting. Now, second, notice that the judgment described by Nebuchadnezzar, to Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, would have been unimaginable to the original hearers. Today we are uh, a people more accustomed to mental illness. We have uh, some at least outward sense that things can go horribly wrong inwardly. And while there may be some minor cultural stigma over mental illness, it's nothing like it would have been back then. Today, when somebody's lost their mind, they are taken to a facility and they're given dignity and care. And we clean up our language about that kind of situation even. It's no longer appropriate to even use the word retarded to describe someone like that. But the ancient world was not that way. If you lost your mind, then you were quite literally run out of town. And to think that the king at the top of his power would not only be driven from his palace, would lose his kingdom, would be run out of the city he built, but would lose a place even in society itself. This is unimaginable. But that's what the dream says is going to happen. Friend, make no mistake, God can do anything He wants. And it is nothing for Him to take the most powerful person alive and upend everything they know. Now third and finally, notice that the dream its function is actually to serve as a warning. The judgments of God in the Bible are always, at least in a temporal sense, meant to be understood as invitations. You see, when God says, I'm going to do this, the reason He says that is because the gap between Him saying it and Him doing it is a gap of mercy and of grace. It's an opportunity to repent. All of us, by the way, especially those who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, you're living in that gap. The gap between what God has said He would do and the enactment of it. That's why Daniel ends the end of the dream with a call to repentance. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, listen, buddy, let me tell you how this can be delayed and perhaps even not take place. King, it's by you changing the way that you live. Now, how does that happen? Well, if this king would but acknowledge his sinfulness before God and submit to God's good rule, confessing that God alone could be merciful to him, then God delights to answer that prayer. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that's a prayer God answers 100% of the time. God's answer to the cry of someone who would confess their sin and fall upon Him for grace and mercy and aid is always yes. 
no matter what you've done. If Nebuchadnezzar would but do that, then his behavior would change. And so a man who had built his kingdom quite literally on the backs of oppressing others would instead find himself being a king of justice, of mercy. The just judgment of God upon him would be averted because the Most High is also the most merciful. If you're listening to this sermon and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you this morning to consider the basic message of the Bible. This is it in 60 seconds. God is most high. He alone is in charge. And you and I were created to be little image bearers who represent aspects of who He is and what He does. And yet we universally have found that unacceptable and declared ourselves to be most high instead. And that is such an egregious offense before God that we all deserve not moments of insanity, but an eternity apart from Him. And the Scriptures tell us that that is the certain future of every person who has ever lived save one. Because there's only one who didn't do the same thing. His name is Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life in order that He could die a sacrificial death. And the basic message of the Bible is not change your behavior and God will love you. It's cast yourself on Jesus and Jesus' death will become yours. And believe that He rose from the dead and His life will become yours. That's Christianity. Hearing that today is part of that gap. The gap between, friend, the way you're supposed to live and what you deserve from God. And that gap exists in order that you would come to Him. Would Nebuchadnezzar, would Nebuchadnezzar heed the warning that God gave him? Well, let's find out. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Despite the crystal clear warning from God, this king continued in his pride. He must have remained convinced that if for an entire year what Daniel said would happen, that the dream meant, didn't happen, that he must be in the clear. Kings find themselves in trouble when they're at ease and they're walking on their roots. Can you think of another king? Be careful when you think you're at the top. Daniel must have spent time praying for Nebuchadnezzar in this 12-month period, but Nebuchadnezzar refused to repent, blinded by his own pride and power. He stood on his flat roof, looking out over his city and marveled at his own greatness. 
One of the things he would have saw, seen as he looked out were what was then known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had married someone from a different part of the world where there were more mountains and greenery. And for her, I mean for himself, he had built a beautiful garden to remind her of where she was from. There were other tremendous things he had done. It certainly appeared that what Nebuchadnezzar was saying was true, that he was the greatest. Yet as poet Carl Sandburg wrote, the earth is strewn with the bursted bladders of the puffed up. Think on that one a while. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. That's a way of saying God said. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven from among men. Your dwelling will be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass. Like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately, the words were fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like a bird's claws. Church, if this sounds like completely nuts to you, then you are one of the very few of us who don't ourselves or have a family member who struggles with some aspect of mental health. When people lose their minds, everything begins to unravel. Nebuchadnezzar fell from a place of, humanly speaking, unparalleled power. And unlike the kings who came before him, he fell not to some enemy without, but to the enemy within. Again, in the ancient world, when this kind of thing happened, you didn't see a therapist, you didn't get medicine from a psychiatrist, you weren't institutionalized and fed three squares a day. You were run out of town. That's what happened to the king. Now, how long did it last? Well, we don't know. Your Bible, your holding says seven periods of time. Seven seasons. In the book of Daniel, most of the time, numbers don't actually refer to a specific period of time. They're, they're symbolic. It's a metaphorical way of saying, uh, this lasted until things were complete. That's what seven stands for. And so we don't know how long it lasted. But it lasted long enough that the dude got matty, nasty hair, and his fingernails were long enough to make him appear even more animal-like. The humiliation of this king was horrific. Now, admittedly, this is an extreme circumstance. But if you are one prone to boasting about your own accomplishments, 
let not the horror of the image pass by unnoticed. I'd love to read the last section. You've done well. We've read a whole bunch of verses. Give me one more reading. Verse 34. At the end of days, meaning when this was over, as it came to an end, Nebuchadnezzar lifted, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. That's a way of saying, I came to finally heed the warning. I guess it's after the judgment, but I repented. My reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever. Now, everything he's going to write after that would be things he would have said about himself prior to this happening. And yet now, in a complete reversal, he praises God as the one in charge, not himself. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand saying, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my majesty, my kingdom, my splendor returned. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I established my kingdom, and still my greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, extol, honor the God, the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Church, when Nebuchadnezzar finally lifted his eyes to heaven and thereby acknowledged that God is most high and he is not, then the Lord graciously responded. For what is always true about God is that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Maybe the most important thing you can seek to cultivate is humility. For in humility you will find God more and more. We're breezing through this story very quickly. So one way you could do that is to express humility by asking another person or two if in the coming week they'd sit down with you, read this story again, and you could talk together about how you see it intersecting with your own life. In what ways do you think like Nebuchadnezzar? In what ways have you not been recognizing who God is? It would be a great thing to spend time with. Nebuchadnezzar had believed that he towered above all, and yet he came to see that only God does. Now, to the first audience of the book of Daniel, these were Jews living in exile. This story would have been a tremendous source of hope. You see, because they were ripped from their homeland, likely for what they believed would be a very short period of time until God would intervene. Now some 30, 35, 40 years have passed. So for people who thought temporarily we will fall under God's judgment, for that to endure for decades would have led them likely to be thinking maybe God doesn't care. And yet the story would remind them that they are not in exile because God is impotent. 
They're not in exile because he's left them and doesn't care. They're not in exile because Nebuchadnezzar is more powerful. And their job, if you will, while they remained in exile was simply to trust him. To continue to be faithful to him. So what's the significance of this for us? Well, you've labored long with me. Thank you. We've been, we've been taking the Oreo and, and pulled off the top. We ate on the top and now we're down in the good stuff. All right? So let me just for a couple of minutes help you lick that cream on the inside and enjoy this meaning. We are not exiles in Babylon. But we Christians remain in exile nonetheless because this world is not our home. And so consequently, the application of this story is exactly the same to us. So I want to take a couple of minutes and say a few things to those who are discouraged. Beloved, be not discouraged as you observe the apparent declining influence of the church in this country compared to the surging popularity of resistance to biblical Christianity. If you don't see that that's happening, you're just not paying attention. It is unequivocally true. Will this affect you? Yes. Unless you hide your faith, your Christianity will become more difficult in the public sphere and has, in fact. I can't imagine anyone who remains serious about the Bible not facing the sting of both formal and informal alienation. And we're in an era in which this opposition will only increase. In fact, we may not be far off from being told there are certain things the Bible says one ought not do. That we, if we repeat that, are oppressive hate speechers. But friend, we, 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 we need not fear. God is most high. Whoever sits in Congress or Supreme Court or the White House, none of those people are sovereign. They might think of themselves as most high, but they are in fact not. God rules. And our focus is too often on all of them and not on God. Let's turn our eyes together to Him. If God can preserve His people for decades under Babylon, He can preserve the church, no matter what will come. I want to also encourage you, speaking of church, that you would be not overly discouraged as you hear of churches being unfaithful. One of the things that happens is as some uh, version of oppression or difficulty or persecution increases, then true churches get stronger and unfaithful churches acquiesce. You were to grab a bike after the gathering and 
bike a mile and a half to two mile circumference around Church on Mill, you would find several churches that are not really churches. They wave quite literally banners that communicate we no longer believe the Scriptures. And it's easy, frankly, to be discouraged about that. And yet we need not be discouraged. There is no such thing as the last Christian generation. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be just fine. And might it be more difficult or cost more money in taxes or mean that there are some things we do with an awareness of civil disobedience? Perhaps. But Christ promised to build His church and He's been pretty good at it for quite a while. So quit freaking out. Finally, I would encourage you especially to be not discouraged if you're under the leadership of an earthly authority who's not treating you as the precious child of God you are. Be it a boss, a teacher, a parent, a husband, a corporation, or a country. Many of us are accustomed to life being harder because those over us abuse their power instead of harnessing it for good. And if you're presently or in the past experienced difficulty from someone who treated you as though they were sovereign, Daniel chapter 4 communicates that God has not forgotten. The same God who saw what Nebuchadnezzar did and dealt with him will in some way, shape, or form deal with what has been done to you. Every wrong will eventually be righted, for God's just. And until then, look to God as the Most High. And look around to us as fellow strugglers. Don't keep your difficulty private. Go to other church members who would walk faithfully with you. And refuse to allow yourself to become identified and defined by a status of victimhood. Instead, look to God. What we see happening today in terms of the talk of justice is in some ways good. Because the law ought to rightfully be applied to all people in an equal way. That's what biblical justice is. But when you begin adding modifiers to our idea of justice and people revel in being one who has been oppressed, then what happens is the oppressed, those who have been oppressed end up oppressing the oppressor. And guess what happens then? The cycle merely repeats itself. Don't get caught up in that. There's a better way. There's a way of Daniel, the one who had faced hardship at the hands of an authority, still wishing him well. If 
You are in difficulty because an authority over you has made it such. Ultimately, the best thing for you to do is to submit yourself to the God who is sovereign. And remind yourself that the same God who has allowed that will not allow it forever. Now, why can we be so confident that these things are true? Well, it's because in the final analysis, we have a king who's a lot better than the king we've been studying today. The power of Nebuchadnezzar was great, but it really was nothing compared to a better king. We serve a king that could not be more different than the king of Daniel 4. Our king is named Jesus. Amen? And if you take Daniel chapter 4 and line it up against a chapter about our king, namely Philippians 2, King Jesus, then just think of the differences between these two leaders. Nebuchadnezzar was a mere man. Jesus is eternal God who choose, chose to become flesh. Nebuchadnezzar was thoroughly selfish. Jesus is selfless. Nebuchadnezzar was evil. I mean, rotten to the bone. Jesus is holy. Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself. But Jesus humbled himself. Nebuchadnezzar built everything around aspiring to be sovereign. Jesus truly is, and yet allowed himself to be mocked, belittled, beaten, spit on, stripped naked. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself. Our king humbled himself to the point of death. Death on a cross for you and for me. Christian, you are not in Nebuchadnezzar. You are in Christ. Therefore, whatever comes between now and when our king returns, God's in charge of, and we're going to be just fine. Father, we ask you in your grace and mercy that you would take this attempt to say what Daniel 4 says. You'd use it both to Convict those who don't yet know Christ. Awaken them to the need to repent. And help them to experience new life as a brand new Christian. We pray that you would take those who are in some kind of authority and have been misusing it. You'd help them to understand that today is a warning. And that they would heed that warning. We pray for those who have been held under the thumb of an authority who has taken advantage of them. Sometimes in most egregious ways. And God, we pray in those brothers and sisters' hearts that there would well up today an immense amount of encouragement. Because what sometimes feels like reality that you don't see, you don't know, you don't care, you're not engaged, is not true. And you are a God who is able and who, in fact, will 
have righteousness reign. Father, there's much here in this text to be worked out in the community of faith. And so I pray that this time together in Daniel chapter 4 wouldn't be the conclusion as we walk out the door in five, six minutes, but instead it would be the beginning of many conversations in the coming weeks about lessons learned, where heartaches are shared, where faith is lifted up, where discipling happens, where mentoring occurs. Use your word to give life to your people yet again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.